Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candice Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Who Do Cleansing Protection Magic, Binaural Production Engineer, Damien Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. If you are interested in contributing to this podcast, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you can click on the PayPal link and make a donation, which would be greatly appreciated. And uh, now, without any further ado, my guest for today is Peter Muse. And he has recently come out with a book. Uh, it is Witches and Warlocks of Massachusetts. Uh, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Gary. I'm excited to be here to talk about witches, warlocks, and what other, other strange stuff might come up in the conversation. Indeed. I hate being burned at the stake, though. Well, then you would like living in Massachusetts because uh, they didn't burn any witches at the stake here. They just hanged them. So that was the thing, right? I think they, uh, they, ha- they burned witches in like Germany or France, places like that. But in England, they usually hanged witches. And so then in New England, they also hanged witches. That was the law. You would hang a witch. You wouldn't burn them. So if you ever see a movie where they're like burning a Salem witch at the stake, you'll know that they have it wrong a little bit there. Really? So those movies from the 70s are incorrect? This is true, yes. I just watched, um, what did we watch the other day? The Devil's Reign from like 1975. I don't know if you've seen this one with um, Ernest Borgnine and William Shatner, but like Ernest Borgnine is this Puritan um, Satan worshiper and in, in Massachusetts and they burn him at the stake. And I'm like, that is incorrect. Never mind if the rest of the movie was just kind of like... <laughs> crazy but it was john travolta's first movie actually it's his really? first movie i think he has like one line in it um he plays a satanic minion whose face melts at the end but it's, you know i would not say it's a good movie but it's entertaining oh I, I love those cheesy movies from the 70s so in massachusetts or in in new england in general i mean it's sort of covered with all this kind of mystique um, how did it happen? Like, like, where did all these tales of witches and witchcraft and the dark arts begin in that particular area, and why? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I think, you know, New England is just really, it's a small part of the United States now, just like that northeast corner of those, those particular states. Um, but it was founded by Puritans from England who came over in the 1600s. And most of the Puritans who came to Massachusetts and Connecticut, those are the first places they came to. Most of those Puritans came from a part of England called East Anglia. And East Anglia was the part of England where they had the biggest witch hunts in England. And so it's sort of no coincidence, I think, that when they came to New England, they brought those witchcraft beliefs with them and they ended up having the biggest witch hunts in, you know, in the United mm-hmm. States here. Um, and if you've ever seen, I, we're talking about movies, like if you've ever seen the Vincent Price movie, which was it Witch Hunter General, I think, or Witch Finder uh, General. General. Yeah. Yeah. That's Matthew Hopkins is that character that he plays a real, that was a real person. So that was in East Anglia. 
so he was kind of stirring things up in East Anglia. So there's the 70s, 60s movie connection again. But um, yes, yeah, so I think that's why New England has such um, so many witch legends. Mm-hmm. And also the people who came over here came over in whatever, starting 1620, people came to Plymouth, 1626 is Salem, 1630 Boston was founded, you know, 1640 Haverhill was founded here. So these, it's pretty old for North America these um this wave of immigration from england and those people would have really like they could have seen shakespeare performed live on stage for the first time right they could have been like oh i just saw a great play called the tempest you know and i'm going to go sail over to the new world and cause trouble so it's a very different um mindset right it's like the renaissance really it's not the same mindset that people even had in the 1700s during the american american revolution like science was not really on the horizon, the enlightenment hadn't happened. So it was a very different way of viewing the world. And I think the Puritans also really, when they came over to New England, they really thought they were building God's kingdom here. It was very much a theocracy they were trying to build. And so when everything, whenever anything went wrong, they were, um, they were eager to blame it on the devil. So when things started to go wrong, like, oh, the devil is behind this. You know, if we lost a battle, the devil's behind it. If the crops are filling, the devil's probably behind it. Things like that. So it's a very different mindset, I think, than we have now. Right. So why did they associate witchcraft, or, or really just like, well, it really was, is folk magic with uh, devil worship? Yeah. It's, and I guess I want to make a clarify something. And I always try to remember to say this whenever I talk to people about witches, is that when we're talking about witches tonight, we're talking about witches in the real old fashioned traditional sense of the word as like a witch is someone who causes harm through magical means. I'm not talking about contemporary witches, you know, like Wiccans or people who practice witchcraft as a spiritual path, because a lot of people do that now. And that's, you know, those people are not evil. They're not practicing evil magic. It's a different thing. But the Puritans had a different view of, a different definition of what witchcraft was. For them, a witch was someone who caused harm through magical means. Um, And I think for them, like, like I said, witches were a way to blame, find a reason why bad things were happening. And it could happen on a very, like, personal level. And a traditional witchcraft story from New England goes something like this, like, you know, I am at my house in the 1600s in Massachusetts. Um, an elderly kind of cranky, cantankerous neighbor comes by and she says, oh, I want, can you give me some of your milk? And I'll be like, no, I can't give you any milk. I don't have enough milk to feed my own family. Mm-hmm. The cranky, cantankerous old neighbor kind of, you know, stomps away muttering under their breath. And then let's say that night something happens to my child, right? My child falls sick. And then the next morning, my cow doesn't give any milk, you know, and then maybe my butter won't churn. And all these things start to happen. And I think back, why are these things happening? Could it be because this cranky old neighbor that I denied something has cast a spell on me, has cursed me because I wouldn't give her the milk? And so it was a way of blaming, finding a way to, well, blame misfortune on something rather than just saying it's random chance these bad things are happening or it's you know my child is sick because there are microbes they're like no it's witchcraft it's that person i argued with and usually it was somebody 
who would ask you for something and then you would deny it to them. And that was often like the start of suspecting somebody of witchcraft because the Puritans had this very strong sense that a community should support each other. And the community was community was uh, interdependent. So everybody in the community should support each other, but some people perhaps would take more than people thought they should. And so then you get these arguments and then that leads to the witchcraft accusations. So they're more just using it as an excuse for revenge. I mean, yeah. obviously they weren't thinking very clear. I mean, 1600, right? You don't have electricity. Your buildings are probably not very good. You're in New England where it's colder than a witch's tit. No pun intended. Yeah. Well, and I'll tell you about the, the origin of that phrase too, if you want to know I'd that. I'd love to know the origin of that phrase. Sure. So, um, which is, it was, you know... Um, it was believed in the 1600s that witches were served by little, like small demons or small imps, and they called those demons or imps familiar spirits. Mm-hmm. Maybe you've heard that term, like a familiar spirit. Yeah. Right. And so, it was also believed that a witch had to feed the familiar spirit their blood, and so the familiar spirit would suck the blood out of a witch's body through a small, unusual nipple, basically. Not like a regular nipple, but an unusual nipple hidden somewhere on their body. It could mm-hmm. be under their tongue, on their back, on their leg or whatever. And so those nipples were called witch teats. And they were supposed to be like cold and they didn't have any sensation in them because they were kind of, you know, demonic. Therefore, they were cold and had no sensation. So that is the witch's tit that you <laughs> now say like, oh, it's colder than a witch's tit. That's what it was. It was this sort of nipple that the familiar spirit would suck the blood out of the witch, supposedly. <laughs> and, bo- and both men or women could have them. It would, you know, either a man or a woman could be a witch, but that's what that, the origin of that term comes from. Interesting. So. Well, I, I mean, I, I can certainly um, testify that uh, a witch's tit is not cold. Well, there you go. <laughs> See, you're talking about a modern witch, I am assuming, right? Not, yeah. <laughs> right. not the 1600s witch that we're talking about. <laughs> And I just also want to be clear that I we're talking about witches in the 1600s. Mm-hmm. There were no real witches then. Like these were just people who were accused by their neighbors yeah. of being witches, right? There was, or maybe there was a political reason they were accused of being a witch or something like that. It wasn't like they actually were witches. Right. So I just want to be clear. What so we're these people about. were not dancing around the pentagram with a fire in the middle, naked in the middle of the woods. No, no, that's happening now, and that's great. I think <laughs> it is, but. Great. In the 1600s, that wasn't what was happening. You know, it was sort of, um, it's interesting because I think a lot of people now, like because of Wicca and other things, you think of like witches being kind of free and naked and sexual, right? And having a great time out in the woods. And there was a little bit of that, but since they were Puritans who, you know, founded New England, even the witches, their stories about witches were kind of tame, so it was like, oh, yeah, we, I saw the witches at a witch meeting, they would say. Like, you know, I went into the woods, I saw the witch meeting. And what happened at the witch meeting? Oh, well, they, you know, the devil came and everyone signed their name in a book. And then he read to them from the book about how they had to, like, take over New England. And then they drank some cider. And then they had some bread that was red. So maybe it was colored with human blood or something. And then they all went home. Like, it was not this kind of orgiastic image that you might have of witchcraft. It was really tame. It was kind of like... Um, that is boring. It was the flip side. It was basically was like the flip side of um, 
a Puritan church service. <laughs> like the Puritans would go to church on Sunday for, mm -hmm. you know, the whole day, basically. And so in their mind, the witches would do pretty much the same thing. But they would just, instead of a minister, they had the devil, basically. Instead of the Bible, they had the devil's book. But it was not this sort of um, big, crazy sexual thing you would see. Even in some European witch trials, they had like much more orgiastic ideas about witches did. But the Puritans are kind of tame in that sense, which is perhaps a little disappointing to people, I think. It is, it is. I love a good orgy. Yeah, well, that don't you, that's why you wouldn't want to live in 1600s Massachusetts, I guess. You know? yeah, I guess I'm better off in 2021. Yeah. Well, now I have to worry about getting COVID at the next orgy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, like how long did this go on for? And, and how many yeah. people were actually persecuted during the witch trials in New England? So the... Um in Massachusetts, they passed a law against witchcraft in 1641. And that law said, you know, if any man or woman be a witch that is half a familiar spirit, they shall be put to death. So that was 1641. And then the last trials in Massachusetts and pretty much in New England were 1692, which were the Salem witch trials. Um, so the Salem witch trials were the biggest and there were 19 people were executed one man was crushed to death while being tortured. A handful of people died in prison. Somewhere between four and seven people died in prison. And over 150 people were accused total. So that was like a huge witch hunt. But before that, um, in New England, there were 83 other witch trials that happened. So that's a significant number, 83. And then 11 people were executed in New England before the Salem witch trials. And five of them were executed in Massachusetts. And they were pretty... In Massachusetts, they were all women who were executed before the Salem Witch Trials. There were five women, most of them from the Boston area. So those are the rough numbers. So like 83 trials involving witchcraft is pretty big, I think. You know, some of those were actual witchcraft accusations. Sometimes people would sue somebody who said they were a witch. Like if I said, oh, Gary's a witch, you might take me to court and sue me for that. So that would also show up as like a witch trial, basically, you know. Right. Um, and so it's, um, yeah, the first woman who was executed was a woman named Margaret Jones, who lived in Charlestown, Massachusetts, which now is just a neighborhood in Boston. And she was a healer. She was very successful at what she did. Um, and she used really simple herbal remedies to heal people, things like anise seed, you know, crushed up in red wine or something like that. And people were sort of puzzled by how her herbal cures could be so effective since they were so simple. So I think people started to wonder, like, was there something more going on? Was she using magic somehow to cure people? And then there, there was that sort of risk. Like, if you were too good at being a healer, people would wonder, like, are you using magic to heal me, which they didn't want? And if you were bad at it, people say, maybe she's using magic to make me sick, just so I'll buy more of her remedies. And so Margaret Jones kind of found herself caught between those two extremes. Like, she's too good at this. She must be a witch. Or if I don't take her medicine, I'm sick. She's putting a curse on me. She must be a witch. So she found herself um, accused of witchcraft and she was executed for that. Um, her husband was also accused, her husband Thomas, but he escaped. He was not found guilty and then he left Massachusetts. He was like, I am out of this colony. Get me out of here. Um, so she was executed in 1648. She was the first person. 
And so, she did supposedly have, she also supposedly had a familiar spirit mm-hmm. that served her and it looked like a small child. And when she was in jail awaiting trial, the jail keeper said that he could, he saw this small child materialize basically in her jail cell and sort of whisper to her and things like that and then disappear. And some other people in Charlestown said they had seen the same spirit wandering around the town. Interesting. So there are, yeah, it's interesting. There are like spooky stories attached to these things. So it's a weird mix. Like I like the spooky stories. I like the sort of legends. I like these learning about what the Puritans thought about folk magic or the supernatural. On the other hand, like I'm also aware that it was, these people were not really witches and the, you know, the witch hunts are perhaps scarier even than the legends about witches, I think, because hmm. they actually really happened. So it's kind of that balance. So what was it that the Puritans had issue with when it came to folk magic and, you know, simple herbal remedies? Right. They, I think, particularly for women, it's, there's a bunch of things happening. One is that women who worked as healers, and there were a few other women healers who were arrested and charged with witchcraft. I think women who worked as healers came into competition with male physicians and often I think that led to tension and some accusations. There was a woman in um, Lynn, Massachusetts, which is just north of Boston, and a woman named Ann Burt. And she was accused, she was a healer. She was also accused of being a witch. She was not executed happily, but she had definitely come into conflict with a male physician because she was kind of stealing his business a little bit. And so I think he was like, oh, we've got to get rid of her. Let's stir up a witchcraft accusation. So I think that's one thing. But also, um, lots of people in Massachusetts at the time, in the 1600s, practiced magic. And I mean, just like people practice magic today, similar things. It was like a lot of fortune telling, basically. So people would, you know, if you were, you know, a sea captain, you might go to an astrologer to see when's a good time for, for your ship to set sail. Or if you, you know, were a young person looking to marry somebody, you might um, do, there's like a trick people do where they put an egg yolk, an egg white inside a glass of water. And then the egg white would form a certain shape. And the shape that the egg white forms would determine like the future career of your husband, for example. So if the egg white forms the shape of a plow, you would know your husband was going to be a farmer. But form the shape of a boat, you know your husband would be a sailor, things like that. So those are like simple sort of folk magic-y things people would do. And they also would do a lot of folk magic intended actually to defend themselves against witchcraft. So a lot of people still put horseshoes above their doors. Yeah. And they, people say, oh, it's just luck or whatever, you know, point it, put it points up so the luck doesn't run out is what people say. But in the 1600s and even later, 1700s, 1800s, people would put those up over their doors to keep witches out from entering their, uh, from entering their house or from entering their place of business. And it was pretty serious. Like you would put that horseshoe up to keep the witch away. And there was a story from um, Newbury, Massachusetts. I think it's the 1660s. A woman named Elizabeth Morse was suspected of being a witch. And one of her neighbors was afraid of Elizabeth Morse. So she nailed a horseshoe up above her doorway. She's like, I'm putting up this horseshoe. I don't want Elizabeth Morse to come into my house. I'm afraid of her. And so, but one, another neighbor was a very devout Puritan man and came and said, you know, horseshoes above the door is a form of magic and all magic comes from the devil. There's no good magic. So he took the horseshoe down from this woman's door, 
then Elizabeth Morris went into her house and then the woman inside the house got sick and died. And so Elizabeth Morris was of course accused of being a witch, but there was this mentality among the Puritans that, among the Puritan leaders, like the, the clergy in particular and the high ranking government officials that all magic was from the devil. There was no good magic. There was no neutral magic. So even like putting a horseshoe above your door, that would be a form of magic and that came from the devil and you shouldn't do it. So there was this kind of spectrum of beliefs. Like I think a lot of people practice magic, but then the leaders of the colony, the Puritan clergy and the government officials were very much opposed to any form of magic at all. It's absurd. I mean, even yeah. like a superstition is considered magic. Right. Right. Yeah. And there was, I mean, there were a lot of them back then. Um, yeah, I, there's a, the Salem witch trial started in the house of uh, Samuel Paris, who was the reverend in Salem village and his daughter, uh, Betty, and then her cousin, Abigail Williams, both started to show like, they started to act strangely. They would like make strange noises and say their bodies were in pain. They would be contorted a lot. They would speak in tongues or things like that. And so people were wondering what was happening to them. And one of their neighbors, a woman named Mary Sibley, came to their house and she instructed the, the, um, a woman named Tichaba, who was um, a slave who in the Reverend Paris's house, she, uh, Mary Sibley instructed Tichaba to make what they called a witch cake. And a witch cake was made from the urine of these two bewitched girls, Betty and Abigail. So they took their urine and mixed it with flour and baked it into a cake. And then they fed that cake to a dog. And the idea was that this would make the person who had bewitched the two girls come to the house so they could identify them. And nobody came to the house to be identified as a witch. And the symptoms of the two girls actually got worse after this. And um, the woman who instigated this, Mary Sibley, the neighbor who made, you know, led the, the making of the witch cake, she actually had to confess publicly that she had error. She had made an error. She had to sign a written confession from the whole church and all this stuff because people took magic very seriously. And so they thought Mary Sibley had made a big mistake by engaging in this form of folk magic by making this witch cake. Hmm. Why is there always an Abigail involved? A lot of Abigails. You know, if you read the Salem, you read stuff from the 1600s, a lot of Abigails, yeah. Sarahs, and Marys. The common, very common names, very mm. common names. Yeah, because just the name itself conjures the image of a witch. Right, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um. So you know, uh, where does some of the other witch stuff come from? Like um, them, like cooking children and cauldrons and stuff like that. Yeah, it's, um, you don't see so much of that in New England, but I think the witches in general, it was believed that they were just opposed to society, right? They're opposed to the social order. And so in New England, you see them like making children get sick or causing death and illness, causing crops to fail, causing farm animals to get sick, really just causing harm to people and kind of trying to, you know, destroy people's lives. Often, you know, it's believed they were women or older women. And there is perhaps this idea that they are 
acting against maternal instincts, right? They don't have maternal instincts. They're doing the exact opposite of what a woman with maternal instincts should do. So they're trying to kill children rather than save children. And so I think that's where like the call to, you know, like cooking children and eating mm-hmm. children comes from. They're like, oh, you know, mothers are not supposed to eat children, but witches eat children, right? Because they're the exact opposite. They would put all their negative ideas about women into witches and they kind of became this archetypal like <laughs> terrifying bizarre. being yeah which you know not true but that's what they would they would believe so yeah it's it's um it's interesting you didn't see too much there wasn't a lot of cannibalism um talked about in this like in new england little hints of it here and there like they you know rather than serve communion wafers as i said before like the devil would serve this red bread mm-hmm. at the witch meetings, which was probably like made with human blood or something like that. So there were a little, a few little hints here and there, but they, it wasn't a, a lot of cannibalistic imagery so much. It was more about um, causing sickness, causing pain, things like that. And often, I mean, the witches, it was believed, would trans- could transform themselves into animals also mm-hmm. and sort of cause harm that way. Um, so it's, yeah, I, there was like, um, I'm trying to think, there was this man in Western Massachusetts in 1650. And this is a, a kind of a, a story that gives you like a typical witch scenario. 1650 out in Western Massachusetts, I think in Springfield, his name was uh, Hugh Parsons. Hugh Parsons. Um, he was sort of an odd person, but uh, you know, he lived in Springfield. It was not a big settlement at the time. And two of his neighbors made a pudding. And a pudding back then was more like a cake. It was kind of like a cake you would kind of boil in a bag or something, right? And so they make this pudding. And when they take the pudding out of the bag, it falls on the floor and splits right in half, clean in half. And they think, oh, this is like um, unusual. Like our pudding has split so cleanly in half. It's like someone cut it with a knife. Like who could have done this? And a na- another neighbor says, oh, you know, if you throw a piece of that pudding into the fire, the person who bewitched it will show up. So they throw a piece of the pudding in the fire. And of course, Hugh Parsons shows up, who is kind of an unusual person to begin with in town. And so they think, oh, maybe Hugh Parsons is a witch since he came when we threw a piece of this pudding into the fire, which when you think about it is so ridiculous. Like it's a pudding, right? It's mm-hmm. like, how is this connected to witchcraft? I don't know. But and then people started to think of all the other things they had happened to them after meeting Hugh Parsons, right? Like somebody argued with Hugh Parsons about a price, the price of some bricks, and then their children got sick, right? Or someone made fun of Hugh Parsons for something, and then they cut their foot with an axe while chopping down a tree. And so they build up all these things that they thought Hugh Parsons had done to them. And um, so he finds himself accused of witchcraft but one person did confess testify that they were in sleep in their bedroom one night when snakes appeared in their bedroom there's these snakes sort of manifested in their bedroom and the snakes crawled into this man's bed while he was asleep and one of the snakes supposedly spoke in Hugh Parsons voice and said death 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 and then bit this guy while he was asleep and the man was sick for like a week afterwards which you know, it was interesting. It, you know, Hugh Parsons was not really a witch, but you read some of these stories and they are similar to things like sleep paralysis that you mm-hmm. hear about now, because often the witches would appear in people's bedrooms at night 
and do things to them. Like in the Salem was a woman named Susanna Martin, who was, um, she had kind of a reputation as being maybe a, you know, a sexually promiscuous woman, perhaps. She was noted for dressing in a very flashy way. And a lot of people talked about she would wear this red bodice around town, which was kind of scandalous. Well, quite a few men testified that Susanna Martin appeared in their bedrooms at night and would try to smother them while they slept and things like that. So you can see that kind of, it's similar to what people talk about now, I think with sleep paralysis, but then they would blame it on like a neighbor who was a witch. And now we, you know, can say, we can say like, oh, it's sleep paralysis. Mm-hmm. Although some people might say it's an alien or a demon, but you know, back then a lot of people would say it was a witch. Wow. So why did it, this sort of, like, like you mentioned, like the you know, sort of Puritans lived, so that's part of the reason why it was sort of isolated in New England. Um, but I mean, there were witches in other parts of the country. Like, for example, I don't live far from New Orleans, which right. is really famous for, you know, voodoo and witchcraft and stuff like that. But they weren't pu- persecuted here, which is kind of odd considering this is the South. Right. Right. And it's part of it, I think, is that in the 1600s, they believed much more strongly in witches. So even, you know, everybody in the government believed in witches at the time. They made a law against witches. But also at the when in the 1600s, when the Puritans came over and, you know, founded Massachusetts and Connecticut and the other states here, um, they were under a lot of pressure. Right. They, they had come over here. They're like, oh, we're going to set up God's kingdom in North America. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. It's going to be a shining city on the hill, all this stuff. But they started, they, by the 1690s, they were really running into a lot of problems. Um, there had been a lot of attacks on the colony, particularly in like the northern parts, like where Maine and New Hampshire are now. Like the Native Americans up there had been burning down settlements and massacring people. So hundreds of people had been killed up in Maine and New Hampshire. And those Native Americans were also backed up by the French in Canada who hated the English and wanted them out. So the colony was being attacked physically in that way. And a lot, like in Salem, during the Salem Witch Trials, there were a lot of refugees from New Hampshire and from Maine who had fled from the North to come down South to Salem. And they carried with them these stories of seeing just, you know, entire families slaughtered, people being tortured and killed you know, settlements being burned, and people were very aware that this could happen to them, that these attacks could happen, you know, in Massachusetts, and they did happen in Massachusetts. So people were feeling like under a state of siege, which was happening. At the same time, the Massachusetts colony had been created with a certain charter from the English king, like he gave the Puritans a charter, like you can go to Massachusetts and kind of form your little Puritan colony. But that charter had been revoked uh, by the British crown. And so the colony, Massachusetts Bay Colony had no actual legal standing. So people were really concerned about that. They're like, oh, what happens to us? Like they could just shut this whole colony down. They could tell us we all today have to go back to England or they could make this not a Puritan colony anymore and things like that. So there was that stress also. So once I think, particularly in Salem village, when a minister's two, when a minister's daughter and a minister's niece started to show signs of being bewitched, people started to panic. They became really concerned because the real focus of the Massachusetts colony was the church. 
And so to see bewitched children inside a minister's house was for, perhaps for a lot of people, the last straw. It's like, oh, this is it. Like the devil is really trying to take over. Now we have to fight back. We have to find every witch we can find and we have to get rid of them. And I think after the Salem witch trials ended, people realized they had made a big mistake. Um, they just realized that the Salem trials had been a big fiasco, that a lot of innocent people had been killed and accused of witchcraft. And although people didn't necessarily stop believing in witches, I think they realized that you couldn't prove the existence of witches or the devil in a courtroom. What made so there were no more trials after what, that. What, what made them turn like that? Like what made them say, you know, maybe killing innocent people is not a good idea. <laughs> I think there had always been, there were always people who were suspicious, you know, who were not convinced they were witches in Salem and had urged caution, right? They would say like, let's, you know, let's be careful with these trials. We don't want to get carried away with it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And some of those people were, you know, ministers also, like some of the ministers in Massachusetts were like, you know, this seems a little extreme. And I think particularly as they saw the a number of- A little extreme. A little extreme. <laughs> but as they saw the number of witches, accused witches growing bigger and bigger and bigger, like, the, pre, the, the witch trials before the Salem witch trials were very small. It's like two people, three people, right? One person. They were very small. There, there were a lot of them, but they were very small. So within Salem, though, it was like there were over 150 people accused of being witches. And that really made people concerned. And some people like concerned because, oh, I can't believe there are so many witches. But other people are concerned like there cannot be that many witches here in Massachusetts something is wrong. Like there's something really wrong here with this whole thing, this whole trial. So there had always been voices and people saying, this doesn't seem correct to us. And unfortunately, some of those people found themselves accused of being witches, right? Because they were daring to question what was going on. But I think it, one of the last straws that kind of turned the tide to mix the metaphors, um, they, some people accused the governor's wife of being a witch. And he was like, mm, I think it's time to shut down these Salem witch trials. Like, <laughs> I'm going to listen to these people now who are saying these whole things have been a scam. We're going to shut this down. And so that was one of the final straws, I think, was when they, some people accused the governor's wife of being a witch. He's like, nope, we're shutting this down. So, <laughs> Governor didn't like that. No. It's crazy. It's, it's yeah, was, yeah, I think he was... He was willing to look the other way, I think, for a while, you know. But I think once that happened, he had to take some action. So did the make um, the witch trials illegal? Um, or how long did, like, how long was it illegal to be a witch? And are there still places in the United States today where it still is? I don't think... Um, I think they passed the law against witchcraft. I mean... I think they took the witchcraft law off the books in the 1700s. So I want to say like maybe 1720 or 1730 or something like that. So the Wassail witch trials were in 1692. And then maybe 30 years later, they finally took the witch law off the books. But it was, um, you know, there were in 17, I want to say 1720, excuse me, in um, a small town called Littleton, Massachusetts, 
there were three girls, three sisters in that town. They were like, you know, eight, nine, and 11 or something like that. Uh, These three girls in 1720 started to show the symptoms of witchcraft that you would see in in the Salem trials. So they would like say they were feeling strange pains. They would bark like dogs. You know, they would say they could see shadowy figures attacking them, whatever. And also these three girls would often be found in weird places. Like they would end up on the top of a house Maybe and their parents would be like, how'd you get in the top of the house? They'd be like, I don't know. I think a witch put me up here. They'd be like found on top of a really tall tree. Like, how'd you get up in that tree? Oh, a witch put me up here. And so these three girls kept saying they were being attacked by a witch and were bewitched. And the neighbors in that town and their parents said, well, if you're being attacked by a witch, you have to tell us who it is. Like, who is this witch? We have to like find this witch and take care of it. And so the girls were like, mm, it's, uh, it's Abigail Dudley. So again, the name Abigail. Abigail yeah. Another Abigail. And Abigail Dudley was like a really prominent citizen in town. She and her husband had one of the, been one of the first couples to settle in the town. They had like built their house. Abigail Dudley had 13 children, all this stuff. And so, but they accused her of being a witch. I mean, this was 1720, so several years after, many years after some witch trials. And so it looked like it would have been another trial because she was accused of being a witch. But then Abigail Dudley died of natural causes. Uh, just a, an, illness, an illness or something killed her. And so there was no witch trial there. And then probably another 10 or 15 years later, one of the girls who had accused Abigail Dudley of being a witch was in church. And the minister was preaching about, you know, if you liars can't go to heaven, basically. And this girl started to break down in tears. And she was now a young woman. She was probably like, you know, in her early 20s, she started to break down in tears. And she confessed to the minister that she had made, she and her sisters had made the entire thing up. That they had originally started just to get attention. And then once people took them seriously and said, well, you know, you have to name the witch who's bewitching you. They realized they just had to name somebody. So they randomly chose Abigail Dudley. Um, But the whole thing was just a... uh, a fake, you know, it was a whole, the whole thing had just been a lie. So, but that was in the 1720s. So, sure, and sometime after that, the laws against witchcraft, the laws making witchcraft a crime were taken off the books. I don't think witchcraft is illegal anywhere in the US anymore. Sometimes there are laws, I think, against fraudulent fortune tellers, maybe. I don't know if any of those are still on the books in the country, but there might be those. Mm-hmm. So, those are to protect people from like, you know, you go to the psychic and the psychic is like, oh, you have a, the money in your bank account is cursed. You need to give me the money in your bank account so I can, you know, cleanse it. Like that type of thing. Hmm. Don't fall for that one. <laughs> I haven't fell for that one yet. Yeah, don't. <laughs> don't. <laughs> your um, car is cursed. You have to give me your car so I can, you know, get the curse out of it. Don't do that. So you've also written about... um like folk magic too and folklore in New England. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's um since two thousand eight I've written a blog called uh just New England Folklore. If you look it up a New England folklore.blogspot.com. And so I try to update that a few times a month. There are about like six hundred entries on there now, I guess. Um so really it's you know, I grew up in the nineteen seventies when there were a lot of 
TV shows and movies about paranormal things are starting to become popular. So like Bigfoot, UFOs were really popular. Uh, the Bermuda Triangle, for some reason, was super popular in the 70s. Like you don't hear too much about the Bermuda Triangle these days, but it's still out there. Yeah. And so that sort of stuff was around when I was growing up. I had an older brother who was into UFOs a lot. And so um, I absorbed some of that from him also. So that was always in my mind, like that kind of interesting kind of paranormal urban legend stuff. And then, you know, I also had always been interested in like mythology when I was a kid, like Greek mythology, Roman mythology, Norse mythology, things like that. And so at some point when I was an adult, I realized I just didn't know much about kind of the mythology and folklore of New England, which is where I've lived my whole life. So I started just to research it and just kind of figure, learn about the place I've always lived. And it's, you know, there's a lot. It's, uh, I mean, like it's 400 years of weird stories. So I'm always finding new and interesting stuff that, you know, so to have, learn about. Have you come across any folklore about the American Stonehenge? I went to America Stonehenge when I was like six years old the first time <laughs> because we lived like, you know, 15, like maybe 10 miles away from it, like really close. Yeah, I grew up on the border of New Hampshire mm -hmm. and that's right in Southern New Hampshire. So we went to America Stonehenge. When I was a kid, it was called Mystery Hill. Yeah, They had not yet like called it America Stonehenge. It was called Mystery Hill. Um, and I loved it. And we went back a few years ago again, just with some friends and we were just crawling around in there and looking at everything. You know, it's... um. Like some people will say that it, it was built by like ancient Celtic monks who came here, right? And then it's sort of a ancient Celtic monastery. And I think some people have said maybe it was built by Vikings. Some people just say that it is just the remains of colonial era root cellars and cider presses and things like that. So I'm not, you know, I tend to be a little skeptical about things, but I will say it's an interesting place to visit if you're in the area. It's worth going to. Have you ever been there yourself? I have not been there, but I've talked to Dennis Stone. He's the, he's the owner who runs it. Yeah. And I, I know he's still waiting on it. They did some, some really high-tech tests up there to really try to determine the age of it. Um, but I don't think he's gotten the results back yet. So I'm going to have him back on when he does get them back. So I'm yeah. really curious. That'd be interesting. It's it's hard to like carbon date some of that stuff, right? Because it's mostly just stones. So I don't. I guess if they find other organic stuff, they can maybe carbon date it. But it's yeah. definitely worth visiting. It's a very cool place to go, and I just love like the chambers are really amazing. And there are lots of stone chambers around New England. Mm -hmm. um, some of them are just stuck out in the middle of the woods. Some of them are like right in people's yards i think so it's pretty interesting and again some people say this these stone chambers are really old and may have been built even by like an early you know native american culture that has since you know gone away or just didn't leave a record of building these stone structures and some people say it's you know it's just colonial root cellars or things like that so it really depends on i guess what sources you're reading interesting and does any of that type of stuff tie into some of the folklore in New England, just some of that strangeness? You know, it's, um, 
it's interesting. I feel like uh, New England kind of has a reputation for being a stranger area of the country than some other parts. Like here in down in New Orleans, New Orleans is like mm-hmm. one of the the weirdo hotspots. And then I think also New England has that reputation too. Maybe because they're both kind of older places. I don't know. I think when I think about New England, I think that um, like the three most famous horror writers in America came from New England. So you've got like Edgar Allan Poe was born in Boston, Mm -hmm. lived here until he was a young man and then left because he couldn't take how uptight it was. He had to go elsewhere, but he grew up here. Uh, So you got Edgar Allan Poe. Then you have H.P. Lovecraft. So he was born like the late 1800s and died in 1937, I think. So he was in Providence, Rhode Island. So he created Cthulhu and the Dunwich Horror, the color out of space, all that sort of stuff. And then you have Stephen King from Maine. And so there's something here, I think, that inspires people to write horror stories. And I don't know if it's the weird history of the area, just sort of the Puritans and the witches, but then after that you have the ghost stories and devil stories. And then then you have the all sort of the modern stuff that other places have like Bigfoot UFOs, sea monsters, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all that stuff. So I think there's something here, whatever it is that has inspired these horror writers. And the area does have a reputation for having weirder, legends and weirder folklore, I think, than some other parts of the country. Maybe just because we're older, but I'm not sure. What is the weirdest story you think there is from New England? Oh my gosh. I don't even know. That's a that's a good question. There are so many stories. I can't even tell it would be the weirdest one. Um, I can tell you... Do you have a favorite? Here's one of my favorites, and it, I like it because it's really simple. Um... And it's from a small town called Cherryfield, Maine. I've never been to Cherryfield, but it's, uh, you know, a smallish town up in Maine. And it's really simple and straightforward. A man from Cherryfield is driving his pickup truck through the woods. And there are a lot of woods in Maine. It's almost all forest. So Mm -hmm. he's driving his pickup truck through this forest, playing the radio, just going about his business, driving down this dirt road through the woods. And suddenly... The, the truck radio stops and then the truck engine stops and he's like, Whoa, what happened? He gets out of the truck and he lifts up the hood and he's looking and it just seems like the engine has just died, but so have all the electrical systems in his truck as well, which is a little unusual, he thinks. So he's standing outside his truck and suddenly he notices this man is walking out of the woods and crossing the roads, crossing the road near him. And he looks at the man like it's a, you know, it's a guy, he's wearing a red flannel shirt, which is kind of normal from the waist up, but from the waist down, he has hairy goat legs and hooves. And this guy who's walking out of the woods also has horns. So he's basically like a satyr or a goat man, but he's wearing a red flannel shirt. And he's walking across the road by this guy's truck. And the goat man looks at the man who has the truck and just kind of gives him this creepy smile and then crosses the road and goes into the woods and disappears among the trees. And the guy's truck, the engine suddenly comes back on, the radio comes back on, the electrical systems are back up and running, and the guy gets it back in his truck and he just drives the hell out of there. 
Oh, it's kind of like a and goat man. It's a goat man, and that is the story. And I just love it because it's um, there aren't a lot of goat man stories from New England. No, but I like that one a lot, and I also like the whole like car engine, the truck engine dies. You, you know that kind of reminds me of like the uh, Betty and Barney Hill story, which is also New England. Right. Yeah. This kind of um, electrical disturbance is often associated with like UFOs. And so I think you see this goat man and he shows up in his electrical disturbance. And that's how you can tell that it's not just like a guy who physically just happens to look like a goat, right? It's like something beyond that. It's some sort of a paranormal occurrence happening in the story. So I sort of, I like that one. That's one of my favorites. I think it's so. uh, Do you think that any of this stuff could be um, uh, people missing? Well, I was wondering if you misidentifying, but maybe they're, they're, they're alien visitations and they're just people are putting them in the wrong uh, paranormal box. Right, right. I, f- I guess this is what I always feel like is that if you read history or folklore or whatever, you'll see that people throughout history have always had weird experiences. They've always had sort of... Um, They've seen weird entities show up in their bedroom. They see strange things in the woods. They maybe see ghosts. They might see strange things out in the ocean. So I think people have always had these weird sort of phenomena happening to them. I think what changes is how you explain what they are. So I think, you know, the ancient Greeks might say, oh, you know, it's it's a nymph causing these problems in our house, or it's, you know, I was in the woods and I saw a centaur and now, and now we would say like, Oh, it's a, it's a poltergeist causing problems in my house. And I went out in the woods and I saw a Bigfoot mm-hmm. or something like that. Or it's people now might say, I saw a UFO. People in the past might say, I saw fairies or I saw right. an angel. Right. Or something so just like categories that. or ways to describe yeah. things you can't understand. Right. And in the future, people might look back and say, oh, I can't believe those people in the 21st century thought they were UFOs. That's crazy. We really now know it was, I don't know what it will be, extra dimensional time travelers or something like that. But I think there'll always be people who have these weird experiences. And I think it's the explanations that will always change, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, I don't, and I'm just saying, I don't know what the real explanation is. Mm-hmm. Like it could just be psychological. It could be something else entirely. But I think the explanation and what we say it is, is what will always keep changing. Interesting. Have you done any research on some of these stories about Templars being in that area? Because there's, I know there's been some structures found that, that have like some Templar symbols on them and... You know, I mean, like nobody's. I don't know if anybody's actually verified them, but but it's it's definitely one of those things that that sort of surrounds that particular area. Yeah, there's um, a tower in Newport, Rhode Island. Yes, that's the one I'm thinking of. I couldn't remember right. what it was. And people have said a few different theories about this tower. There are like at least three different theories, probably more than three. If I say there are three, there are probably at least seven. But some people have said that this tower, it's a big, it's a decent sized stone tower. So maybe it's like 30 or 40 feet high or something. And it's right in the middle of Newport, which is a very old city. It's an old colonial seaport. And so this tower is up on a hill. 
and you can go look at it. It's in a park. And I, we went there at the 4th of July to go look at it. So there's this tower. In the 1930s, some people started to say, I think it was the 1930s, maybe it was a little earlier. People started to think, oh, perhaps this tower was built by Vikings because it looks like a Viking tower, some sort of European tower. And some other people have also suggested that perhaps it was built by the Templars, that the Templars fled the persecution they were facing in Europe and came to North America and built this tower here, built a castle here. So those are a couple theories about it. Some people just say that it was built by the um, governor of Rhode Island who was living in Newport in the 1600s because he reports building a stone windmill near his property. And this structure is where that stone windmill would have been. Mm-hmm. So that's another one. Like maybe it was just a, maybe it's just a stone windmill. So, but it's an interesting, it's an interesting building. It's, you can't go in it. It's, and it has no floor inside. It's just sort of a hollow stone tower now, but it's, yeah, it's right up in uh, downtown Newport in a park that anyone can go look at. Hmm. So I remember hearing that it has some type of capstone and that it has some type of planetary alignments that, that fit yeah. with the Templar mythology and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I've heard that too. I don't know how true it is, but that's what I've heard people say too about it. And um, I did, I don't know. I, I feel, I guess here's my, why I question some of it is that when the people settled that town in the 1600s, which is a long time ago, Nobody wrote down and said like, oh, we've come to this wilderness and found a stone tower in the middle of it. No, uh, they didn't, no one discovered the tower in the 1600s or the 1700s. It was, you know, they recorded building a stone tower for a windmill, but no one said, oh, we've discovered this mysterious stone structure, which they would have done if they had found it. I think they would have said, oh, we found a stone tower. How weird is that? But they didn't. And it wasn't really until the, later in the 20th century, people were like, oh, we think this might be a, a Norse building or something like that, or a Templar building. So, hmm. What do you think the oldest structure in New England is? Oh, that's a good question, what it is. Um, I mean, uh, I guess, I mean, I, I, people have lived in New England for 13,000 years or something like that, 15,000 years. I mean, people came here right after the last ice age ended because, you know, during the ice, during the ice age, they were like something like a mile of ice here, like a huge amount of ice. And after that retreated north, people came here. I think the oldest structures that people have found in it, structured by a really loose definition of the term, are shell middens. Do you know what a shell midden is? It's basically no. just a pile of refuse. So people, uh, early Native Americans would live by the shore and they would, you know, eat shellfish. So eat lobster, uh, you know, clams, oysters, mm-hmm. scallops, and they would throw all the shells into a pile. And some of those, they found those like in Maine and other places, and they're incredibly old. They're like thousands of years old. So it's basically just these piles of shells that people made over years and years and years of just eating, having basically big clam bakes and things like that. So those are like the oldest, I think a historian would say. Then, you know, like some of the old wooden houses from like the 1630s or things like that. And then you have like those stone chambers 
And some people will say those are from like the Vikings or the, you know, Celtic monks or things like that. But again, it's, those are hard to date. It's like um, America's Stonehenge, it's hard to date. So that it could be colonial root cellars, it could be something else entirely. Do you think Vikings were ever in New England? I don't think so. Like we know they were in Canada. They were I mean, they Canada. They had to be in New England. Like they definitely were in Canada, and they found like their settlement up there. They didn't. I don't know. They've never found anything down here, really. Um, and I know there was a time, like politically, there was a time in the eighteen hundreds where, um, like a lot of the wealthy white Northern European people who lived in Massachusetts and lived in Boston really wanted proof that there had been Vikings here because the state was becoming more diverse. Mm -hmm. A lot of Italians were moving in in particular. And, you know, Columbus was Italian. He had been the first European, whatever, to come here or something like that. And so the... Um, sort of the white, wealthy people of Northern European descent really, really, really wanted proof that Vikings had come to Massachusetts. So they could sort of say like, we were here first before those right. Italians. Yeah. Isn't there like a whole bunch of stuff in Boston where they tried to push the Viking yes. story? Yes. And they, there was one guy in particular, I can't remember his name at the moment, but like he would just go around and find like boulders and be like, this boulder is the foundation of a Viking house from like, you know, 1000 AD. It wasn't, it was just a boulder. But, you know, he would just identify all sorts of natural formations as being built by the Vikings because he really wanted proof that Vikings had been here. There's a statue of um, Leif Erikson. Yes, yes. And I think there's uh, a stone somewhere where they say he carved his name. Yes. This, uh, the statue of Leif Erikson is right near Fenway Park where the Red Sox play. And it's like he's dressed like a Viking and he's on a Viking ship. And you're like, why is this here? <laughs> <laughs> but they really wanted to prove that Vikings were here. I don't, I don't think they did, but they were really <laughs> eager to prove Vikings were here. So, yeah. There's actually a stone tower a little further down the Charles River from Boston that those same groups of people built in the 1890s. So they like, this was the Viking capital. They said this was the Viking capital of, they called it Norumbega, was the name of this kind of mythical Viking city that they thought had been built in the Boston area. Right. But. And that's another thing, too, is that some of the names of the places, right, are sort of, were named after Viking stuff, or places where the Vikings came from? Uh, I mean, Norumbega was kind of a mythical city that some people reported finding in New England is supposed to be like a basically it was kind of like El Dorado it was like a city of gold that various people said they had found but no one ever found it there's no gold here there's no like you know this was not you know like the Aztecs or something like that there was not this vast wealth of gold in this area but um yeah so there was this kind of idea that perhaps there had been a Viking city here or something like that but they just there I don't think there was personally but Definitely Canada, though they know that they had they had a settlement up there. Hmm. I think if they were Canada, they had to be in Boston. Maybe. 
I, I mean, they came down. They came down here for the warmer weather from Canada, right? Yeah, and it's not that it's really that much warmer, but you know, I mean, they at least came for the lobster. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um. So, so what are some of the other things in New England that people would want to check out if they're into scary things? Yeah, there's a lot of um, interesting places you can visit. Like, obviously, I, Salem is always great. If you've ever been to Massachusetts, I would say you should go to Salem. It's, there's a lot to see there and for a variety of things. Like, if you are into history, you can see museums if you are into the Salem witch trials there is like the witch house which was where um, one of the Salem witch judges lived Jonathan Corwin and people say that house is haunted I think the um, like the ghost adventures crew or one of those paranormal shows did an investigation at the Salem witch house which is from like 1630 it's like a really old speaking of old structures that's a really old building you can see things like that. You can visit Proctor's Ledge, which was where the witches were actually hanged. The, the, the alleged witches were hanged. So you can see sort of the history stuff. But then also in Salem, there is kind of, um, there's like a, a lot of modern witches also. So there are witchcraft stores. You can like so many fortune tellers, tarot card readers, all of that stuff. And then at Halloween, it's just like a big party. Like it is like a Halloween carnival basically for like a month. Of cool. costumes and parades and all that stuff so it's a really crazy place that's i mean so that's a good place to visit if you come to massachusetts mm-hmm. if you want weirder or spookier things yeah um something kind of think dark of, sinister something evil. sinister evil I, do, I try not to go to the dark sinister evil places if i can help it I do. but a couple places i've been that have been creepy um I've been to this place called the Ramtail Mill Complex, and this is in Foster, Rhode Island. So it's a like a small rural town. Uh, I think it's west of Providence, and it's out in the woods. And it was built as the Ramtail Mill was a mill that was built in the 1700s. It's by a, it was by a small river, and it was a successful mill and that like a small village developed up around it. The manager of the mill, he managed the mill for a wealthy family and he, you know, he worked hard for them and he fell in love with the mill owner's daughter. And he said to the mill owner, like, Oh, you know, you know, I've worked hard for you. I manage the mill. I'm a good person. I like to marry your daughter. And the mill owner was like, no, that's ridiculous. Like you work for me. You're a poor person. You're not going to marry my daughter. Sorry. And so the guy who managed the mill was really distraught about this. And he kind of, you know, ran out into the woods. So the next morning, the bell in the mill rings. And this is what summons all the workers every morning. The bell rings. So they hear the ding, ding, ding. So everyone's like, okay, time to go to work. So they go into the mill. And they're all horrified to see that the manager of the mill has hanged himself by tying the rope of the bell around his neck. And so he's swinging there on this rope and that's what's making the bell ring is that his, he's swinging on the rope. Everyone's like, oh crap, this is terrible. The owner of the mill, the wealthy man is like, okay, I'm gonna cut the body down. We'll bury him, everyone go back to work. So they cut down the body, everyone goes back to the work. The next morning, 
people hear the bell ringing and they all go back into the mill. It's like, okay, it's time to go to work. They go back in the mill and they can see that the bell is ringing by itself. So the rope is swinging back and forth and ringing the clapper inside the bell, but there's nobody, they're like, no one is moving the rope. And people are a little freaked out about this. So the owner of the mill says, you know, don't pay any attention to this. This is probably just the wind or whatever. But then he cuts the rope down. He just takes the rope down entirely. There's no rope at all. You probably see where this is going. Mm-hmm. Next morning, people hear the bell ring. They wake up, they go to the mill. The bell is ringing entirely on its own. There's no rope at all. And the bell is just swinging back and forth. And it's a big, heavy bell. It's swinging back and forth, ringing, 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 ringing. And at this point, everyone realizes that the mill is cursed, that the manager of the mill who killed himself is haunting the mill. And so after this, people start to see him wandering around the mill at night, his ghost, carrying a lantern as he would you know, do his nightly rounds. But now it's his ghost doing the nightly rounds around the mill. And people refuse to work there because it's cursed and it's haunted. And so people start to abandon the ram-tail mill and move away. And eventually it closes and shuts down and becomes abandoned. And you can go and see this complex out in the woods even now, and you can explore the village that's there. And it's just, you know, cellar holes and stone walls and roads in the woods. And um, we went there and it was spooky. Like it's a spooky place. You're out in the woods, this abandoned, cursed little ghost town village. Um, and I tend not to have like weird experiences happen to me, but that was one of the few places where something strange happened to me. I was taking pictures of, you know, the buildings and things like that using an iPhone. And quite a few of my pictures just came out solid white. And I was like, this has never happened to me before. Like, how does this happen on an iPhone? I would take a picture and then it would just be white. And I'd take another picture and it would just be white. And, um, I will say that I was spooked by that. It was a little creepy. Hmm. That's one of the spookier places I have been. So if you're in the area, you can try to go to the Ramtail Mill Complex, I think. Sounds like fun. I think I saw that on Ghost Nation. You may have. It's a famous, yeah, it's a famous place. How about the Lizzie Borden house? You know, this is really sad for me to say. I've never been to the Lizzie Borden house. Isn't that terrible? I should just go. I've lived here my whole life. I should just go. (laughs) I have never been to the Lizzie Borden house. Um, Yeah, I'm trying to think of other creepy places. You know, here's a one place I went. I like to go to cemeteries. That's a a favorite place for me to go. And so we went to a cemetery in, I want to say it's Nashua, New Hampshire. It's um, the Gilson Road or Gilson Street Cemetery. So this is just like a small cemetery on like a little country road in New Hampshire. And there's a legend there that it's haunted by a woman named Betty Gilson. And so if you go to the cemetery and you scream out, Betty Gilson, I have your baby, Betty Gilson will appear. And she'll just appear like along the road or she'll appear in the trees. And she's a woman in like old fashioned clothing. And so I did not scream out Betty Gilson's name. I did not, I was not in the, I was not brave enough to do that. But the cemetery itself is really interesting because it's, um, it's not well-maintained. Like most cemeteries around here are pretty well-maintained. It's not well-maintained. So it's very rundown. 
and there's been a lot of um, human activity there. So when we went, there were like people had put coins on so many of the graves. A lot of the graves had coins on them. And it's interesting because so many of the coins there just say baby because it's a lot of children who died young. So like five or six graves in a row and they all just say baby, 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 which is really sad. So people put a lot of coins on those. There was like um, someone who made some sort of little like wooden fetish item or to totem item. It was just like twigs tied together in a certain shape with string that was left on one grave, another grave. And this was for a child who had died in the 1800s. So this was not anybody's current relative by any means. It was like a child who had died in the 1800s. They had put all these toys around it. It was like a Scooby-Doo and a helicopter and stuffed animals and all this stuff. So it's a really weird and interesting grave. And I don't know what people do there at night, but people are definitely doing something there at night. It's like some sort of ritual activity or whatever is probably happening. It's sort of interesting uh -huh. if you are into that sort of thing. That sounds cool. You know, I, I've actually thought about going into old cemeteries and exhuming bodies and getting the skulls. You know, a human skull is like $5,000. Yeah, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> it's easy money. Yeah, someone would catch you, and then I wouldn't be able to go into your podcast again because you'd be in prison, sadly. But <laughs> maybe more people would donate to my podcast if they, if they knew yeah, to get you out of jail. Right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I go. To, I like to go to cemeteries. I also feel it's really important to be respectful when you go to a cemetery in mm -hmm. different ways. Um, I have a friend who, whenever he goes to a cemetery, he leaves a little offering. And so whether that's just like pouring out some water on the ground or maybe leaving a coin at the gate or something like that, like he leaves a little offering for the guardians of the cemetery. And whether you believe in guardians of the cemetery or not, I think it's good to have that kind of respectful attitude towards them and there is sort of like a lot of lore about cemeteries like you know you shouldn't step on a grave yeah. right you should try you step around the grave like i wouldn't want someone to step on my grave that would not be good um and it's you know it's just supposed to be really bad luck to step on a grave you shouldn't um here's another one like you shouldn't visit a cemetery and then go to somebody's house because this idea that you will like basically track death from the cemetery and bring it with you to the house. Like you shouldn't visit a cemetery and they're like, oh, I walked through the cemetery and I'm going to go visit my friend's house. Like, don't do that. That's supposed to be bad luck. So there's all this kind of cemetery folklore like that. Even the one I just read that if you spend too much time in the cemetery reading the old gravestones that you will actually lose your memory and you'll just kind of become like confused and befuddled or something like that. Which I, you know, interesting. That, that, that may explain a lot about me. <laughs> so you've also written another book on fairies or the, the fae, the little people. Um, right. I didn't, I didn't write the, I'll just, I didn't write the whole book. I wrote a chapter mm -hmm. in it. Oh, I wrote okay. a chapter about fairies in New England. Yeah. Okay. So, so what kind of fairies are in New England? I don't know if you've heard the term Pukwudgie. I don't know if you know that term. Pukwudgie, um, yeah. Yeah, that's the term people use now to talk about like the little people that live in the woods around here. And that term kind of evolved over time. 
you know, like the, um, we'll go back to the Puritans just for a second. Like the, when the Puritans came here, as I said, they came from East Anglia and East Anglia had a lot of witchcraft folklore, a lot of witchcraft beliefs. They didn't have a lot of fairy folklore though. They didn't really talk a lot about fairies in East Anglia. And so when the Puritans came here, like, ah, oh, there are no fairies here. There are no fairies in New England, right? There are just, there are definitely no fairies here. But they were ignoring, you know, the Native American people who lived here, the Native Americans who, you know, had a lot of stories about creatures and beings that lived in the woods or under the hills or in the ponds or wherever. And often those creatures that they thought lived in the woods or the ponds or wherever would sort of be similar to what in Europe you would call a fairy, right? Maybe they're mm -hmm. small creatures with magical abilities who are kind of nice if you treat them the right way, but not nice if you treat them poorly and kind of morally ambiguous, right? And so you want to treat them respectfully and, you know, treat them well and things like that. So the Native Americans had all these stories about these beings. And really the term Pakwaji isn't really indigenous to this area. It came from the Ojibwa people who live out in the, the upper Midwest but it became popularized through a poem by Longfellow called Song of Hiawatha. And so the term Pakwaji sort of became attached to this area and is now kind of what people call the little people who live here, the Pakwajis. Um, and it's interesting. I think, you know, some people will say Pakwajis are malevolent and should be avoided at all costs. There's a place down in southeastern Massachusetts called the Freetown State Forest. So if you want to visit someplace spooky, the Freetown State Forest is a spooky place. Like I've been there, that's a spooky place. Uh, there's a particular ledge there called the Asanet Ledge, mm -hmm. which is a big stone ledge overlooking a pond. And people say that, you know, Pakwajis are seen around that ledge and throughout the forest in general, but they will push people off that ledge. Like if you get too close to the edge, they'll push you off and you will, you know, probably crack your head on the way down and die. So there's this idea that the Pakwajis are sort of dangerous and malevolent. And from the Freetown State Forest, there are some stories told by people who live near it of seeing Pakwajis who are, just give off like bad vibes. They see like these small hairy beings who, you know, almost stalk people. Like you see it, you see them in the woods. The next thing you know, you see them outside your house. You see them outside your car when you get in your car in the morning and they're just giving you an uneasy feeling. And often that only ends when you move away from the area. So there's this one stream of folklore that says the Pakwajis are dangerous and should be avoided. And then you also, I think, have some folklore that maybe comes more from indigenous folks or Native Americans where Pakwajis are not quite so sinister but should be treated with respect maybe and like you know you wouldn't there's certain rules maybe like you leave out food for them at midsummer or you don't say their name publicly because they don't want you to be talking about them or things like that so kind of that mixed bag i guess about pukwajis wow have you ever seen a pukwaji i never have i don't know if i want to i'd probably be too scared to be honest, right? Have you seen a Pakwaji? I've seen some things. You've seen some things. I think the only thing I 
would really say I have seen is when I was a kid, my brother and I and our backyard neighbor thought we saw a UFO. And, um, you know, we were outside playing in the backyard. It was like a summer night and it was dark. And we saw this big bright light come down from the sky and go down a hill behind us and a hill nearby and went down behind that hill. And we were so terrified. Like I was probably like five or six or something. My brother was a little older than that. Our neighbor was the same age as my brother. We were just so, so terrified. Like we ran in the house and we did not go back outside. My neighbor would not go back home until his parents came home. They were like at church or something like that. We were just petrified. So I don't know if it was a UFO or if it was, I don't know what, a helicopter or a flare or who knows what it could have been. But I just remember that feeling of being scared and also being amazed at the same time. That's like this cool. thing that I always heard about, I finally saw. Like there it was. And it was terrifying and amazing, whether it was true or not. It was terrifying and amazing, you know. UFOs are real. They, I guess they are. You Have you seen one? one? I think so. Yeah. What did it look like? Well, I tried this technique to actually use my consciousness to contact a UFO. Mm. And uh, and I thought it was a little crazy, but I looked up and I was doing it. And at first I saw a plane. I'm like, I oh, plane and then I saw something moving but it was moving straight I said okay well there's this plane here I'm watching this thing move but it was moving straight so I'm like well maybe it's a satellite but then all of a sudden it just took a sharp turn and disappeared yeah right that's not a plane or a satellite yeah see that's pretty cool it is pretty cool it's amazing sometimes I question the reality that we live in what was the technique? Can you share it? Or is that like no, proprietary yeah, information? No, it's, it's not proprietary at all. I mean, Stephen Creer will call it the CE5 technique. Um, but I learned it from one of my guys called, his name is Preston Dennett. He's a regular on my show. And basically, you just kind of sit outside and, 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 and in your mind, you kind of say like, hey, you know, if, if you're out there, I want to see, show me. And you just kind of send it out into space, mm. and um, and, and uh, they show themselves. Uh, I mean, it, it all has to do with some type of um, conscious connection that we have with maybe not just them, but with everything. Right, right. That's really interesting. Maybe I'll try it one of these nights. Sure. It's nice and dark now. It's like the season to do it. It is, and it gets dark earlier now. So um, before we wrap this up, where is the best place for my listeners to find you and to find your books? You can find me at my blog. That's the best place, uh, newenglandfolklore.blogspot.com. Or you can just look up New England Folklore blog. I'm pretty much, I'm the one that will show up. So just like New England Folklore blog. And I do a variety of stuff. Um, I do old stories from the 1600s, but then... I do everything in between. I do paranormal things, Bigfoot stories, all of that. And um, you can find me there. You can also find my book pretty much wherever you buy books. So it's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, bookshop.org, Books A Million, places like that. Right. And it just they just came out, the Kindle edition just came out also. So I was pretty excited about oh, that. Great. So it's in paperback and Kindle if you Great. like I, I mostly buy Kindle stuff now. 
I do, you know, because I kind of ran out of space for books. Me too. So oh, I buy a lot more Kindle now. Like, there's no more room. I got to buy Kindle. For me, like, like every time I move, I'm like, oh, Jesus, I'm moving all these books. <laughs> <laughs> They're the worst. <laughs> really heavy. Yeah. Really heavy. Yeah. Well, thanks, man. This is a pleasure having you on. And I will post the links to your blog and to your books in the notes of this episode so my listeners can uh, check you out and buy some of your stuff. That is great. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks for being on. And hang on for one moment while I play the outro. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or message him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the cost of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of this page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. You can also buy the book Enlightenment Guarantee. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. You can find it on Amazon and it will change your life. Because remember, everything that it says. <laughs>